All right, so we're going to be doing the book of Esther. Now, some of you guys have wondered, one, what's the book of Esther? Uh, Well, it's an Old Testament book. Um, You probably notice it has a female name. Why are we as men studying a book with a female name? You'll find out as we get into it. Um, But really, as the title of this series kind of tells you, this is less about Esther, the book of Esther, than it is about God. And so what I'm going to encourage you through the next nine weeks as we study the book of Esther, I want you to be looking for God. I want you to look for him in the scriptures. Uh, I want you to see him in your everyday life. And I want you to become increasingly more sensitive to the role that God plays. Uh, The real thing that we're looking at is his sovereignty and his providence in our lives. If you're like me, there are often times in your life where you feel like God's not there. Now, if somebody asked you, you would say, well, sure, God's there. You just don't feel like he's there. Uh, You may be going through a difficulty. You may have something happening relationally, financially, with your health, and you feel like, where is God in this? What we're going to learn from the book of Esther is that God is always there. And I can't think of any other time in life where we as Christian men need to know that, hear that, and recognize that in our lives. God is always there. He's always cognizant of what's going on in your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, and he is in control of life, whether you feel like it or not, whether it seems like it or not, God is in control. So that's really what we're going to be looking at over the next nine weeks. So providence. Providence is is a um, somewhat controversial topic in the church. It has been for centuries. Uh, And there are those who ignore the word providence. The word providence is not found in the scriptures. I'll just warn you. Um, It's it's not a word that's in the scriptures. It's a concept. It's a theology that's found in the scriptures, much like the Trinity is never found in the scriptures, the word Trinity, but the concept, the theology, the doctrine of the Trinity is all throughout the scriptures. So what is providence? Providence. The Heidelberg Catechism says this, this is written in 1563, the almighty and ever-present power of God, whereby he still upholds, as it were by his own hand, heaven and earth together with all creatures, and rules in such a way that leaves and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and unfruitful years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, and everything else come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Now that's a very, very wordy definition. Uh, But basically, it's just saying that from the moment he created the world, the universe, the cosmos, and you, he's been in control, and he upholds it. There are those who believe, and I'm not one of them, but there are those who believe that God um, is the divine clockmaker. God made creation. He made the world. He made the universe, and then he just kind of walked away from it. He wound up the clock, and he's just letting it run. And whatever happens, happens. They believe that everything is basically happening by chance. They believe in God, but they believe God is a distant, disconnected God. The doctrine of providence is going to teach us that he is anything but that. He didn't just wind it up and let it go. He is intimately involved in every affair of life. Now, where that's going to get tricky as we get into this over the next weeks is that what do you do with evil? What do you do with the negative things in life? And, and 
it's, it's controversial, it's hard, but just because it's hard doesn't mean we should deny it or run away from it. So we're going to dig into it over the next weeks because it's important for us to understand that God is in control, always has been in control of the affairs of my life and your life, and it has nothing to do with chance. Now, we use that term a lot. We, we, uh, we say things like, well, it just so happened, and, and you're going to see in the book of Esther that that phrase could be used all throughout the book because it seems like things just happen. What luck, what, uh, what a coincidence. And I want us to understand that as Christians, there really is no such thing as coincidence because of the sovereignty and the providence of God in our lives. Augustine of Hippo in 354, well, actually he was born in 354. He said this, nothing therefore happens unless the omnipotent wills it to happen. He either permits it to happen or he brings it about himself. Now, why is that important? Because there are things that happen in your life and in my life every day that we look at and go, that can't be of God. There's no way God would permit it to happen or cause it to happen. Now, why would we say that? Usually it's because we don't like it. It could be the fact that, you know, this weekend uh, I worked in the yard and, and I pulled something in my back. And so my back is, is killing me right now. Well, how could that be of God? Why would God permit it or cause it? Well, here's the answer. I have no clue. But I do believe God either permitted or caused it. And he's got a reason behind it. It wasn't just happenstance. It wasn't just stupidity on my part. Well, it could have been. But God will even use my stupidity. So this, this is important, guys. This is critical to understanding life. Otherwise, we go through life just saying, well, it just so happened. It's just chance. And yet, as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of God Almighty, we have to live with an idea that our God is supremely in control. R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Esther, says, God sovereignly works in and through the everyday, non-miraculous events of life to affect his will. Now, that can be comforting or that can be really scary. That God's going to work through the everyday, non-miraculous events of your life to affect his will. And if you think about it, because God is God, what is one thing God is obsessed with? His will. That his will be done. That what he has willed, what he has put into motion will take place. And so he's going to use anything and everything to bring his will about in my life and in your life. And again, he's going to use the good, the bad, and the ugly, the pleasant and the unpleasant to accomplish what he has set out to accomplish. William Graham McDonald says this, Providence is the evidence that God has not left this planet alone in the vast universe or forgotten for a moment the human situation. You ever felt like that, though? Like, where in the heck have you gone? I know after 9-11, that was in a lot of believers' minds is, where is God? What is going on? But he goes on and says, God visits, touches, communicates, controls, and intervenes, coming before and between man and his needs. 
That's the doctrine of providence. That's the doctrine that is all throughout the book of Esther. And you're going to see it as we dig into it. And yet, with all those great quotes in mind, with the, the idea of providence laid out in front of us, you go to the scriptures and here's what you find. Psalm 10.1, oh Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? Now there's not a guy in the room that hasn't felt like that, right? That, that couldn't have written this psalm yourself. Where the heck have you gone? What are you doing? Why is this happening? Psalm 13.1, oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? Man, I have been there and I have felt like that. And I have called out to God and said, what are you doing? Where have you gone? Why is this happening? When is it going to end? Get over it. Remove it. So you have in Scripture this kind of paradox between the providence of God and yet the perspective of man is very real. Sometimes it just feels like he's not there. Sometimes you just wonder what's going on. If you've ever lost your job, if you've ever uh, gone through a divorce, if you've ever had a bad report from the doctor, if you've ever lost a child, if it, whatever it may be, at those moments, you can't help but go, God, what are you doing? How is this good? How is this providential? How are you going to use this in my life? But what has to drive our thought patterns is the realization that our God is, number one, a good God, a holy God, a righteous God. And that he is all-powerful, he is in control, and he knows what he's doing, whether we recognize it or not. And that's my hope and prayer as we study the book of Esther, that you will recognize in the story of Esther, which is really not the story of Esther, it's the story of God and his people, you'll realize that your God is in control, regardless of what's happening in your life. Bart Ehrman says this, I think that faith has to have substance. One of the problems we have as Christians is sometimes our faith has no substance. It's a word we use, but it doesn't really matter in our everyday life. He says, but once you start putting some substance on faith, on that, you get into trouble. Faith in the Judeo-Christian tradition has a God who intervenes. That's what the Exodus event is. That's what the crucifixion is. It's a God who intervenes. And when I look around this world, this is the sad part of his statement, I don't see a God who intervenes. Now that's an honest comment from a theologian who's basically saying, I get the exodus, I get the crucifixion, I can read these stories and see God intervene, I just don't see him intervening in my life. And here's my challenge to you this morning. This is not a study about Esther. You're going to walk away, if you stick for nine weeks, you're going to know more about Esther than you ever wanted to know about Esther. And you'll be able to impress your wives and friends with all your knowledge of the book of Esther. But if that's all you get out of this, you've missed the point. What I want you to walk out with is an understanding of how in control your God is. I want you to be able to see, I see God, I see a God who intervenes in my life. As you look at the affairs of your life, as you watch the daily events of your life, you begin to see God at work in your life. That's my goal. That's my hope as we do this study. So the book of Esther. Here's three lovely pictures of Esther. We have no idea what Esther looked like. 
If she looked like this, I don't know how she won the beauty pageant she won. And you'll, you'll see that story in the next few weeks. But Esther was a woman, obviously. Esther lived a long time ago. Esther was a character. Esther was real. This is not a fable. It's not a myth. It's a real story about a real person. But it's not a story about Esther, as I said earlier. It's about the providence and sovereignty of God in the life of Esther. So she's a character. Uh, she's going to have some pretty incredible experiences, as we're going to see in just a few minutes. But it's really about the God of Esther, the same God we worship, the same God we serve. Obviously, it's an Old Testament book because it's in the Old Testament. It's going to cover the period called the dispersion when the Jews were scattered, when they were um, taken captive by the Babylonians and spread out through Assyria to Babylonia. So it's, it's a period of time when the Jews were no longer living within Israel, except a remnant. It's the same time period that we covered when we studied the book of Nehemiah several semesters ago. And we're going to find out that there's some interesting correlations between what was happening during the, the time period of Nehemiah, the same time period, what's happening with Esther. It's after the Babylonian captivity. If you remember the story of the Israelites, um, God gave them a king because they demanded a king. He gave them King Saul. King Saul proved to be a disobedient king. And so God replaced him with King David. King David ended up being a good king, a righteous king, a man after God's own heart. His son Solomon started out as a great king, but then he rebelled against God. He married multiple wives. He brought in idols and worshiped those idols. And so God took the kingdom and split it in two. And you ended up with Israel and, and Judah, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And then over a period of years, God called out to them. He called them to repent, to repent to return to him, and eventually neither one did. Israel went into captivity in Assyria, and then the Babylonians conquered Judah and took them into captivity. That's the period we're talking about, when the Jews are in captivity. And this story is going to be about the Jews who are living in Persia, and they're the Jews who have lived under Babylonian rule. The Babylonians get conquered by the Persians. Now they're living under Persian rule and they've been there for quite some time. And you're going to find out that they've become very comfortable living under Persian rule. There's a certain aspect of this story. You know, one of the things that we have to be really careful in studying these character stories like Esther is that we want to deify these characters. We want to take Esther and put her on a platform and say, look at Esther. What a godly woman. Look at Mordecai. What a godly man. But the problem is that's not what this book teaches. They're, they're not icons of virtue. As a matter of fact, you're going you're gonna to see that there's enough proof to say that they really weren't very faithful to the God they say they worship. So it's not about Esther. It's not about Mordecai. It's about the providence of God. And here's the interesting thing about this book. And one of the reasons I wanted to study it is his name is never mentioned in the book. Nowhere. There's no miracles done by God. There's no reference to God. He doesn't appear. He doesn't show up. There's no prophets. He's never mentioned in the book. It's the only book in the Bible that never mentions the name of God. And yet, I'm going to use it to teach about the providence of God. I think there's a reason he's not mentioned. And I think it's because the author 
And we're really not sure who the author was, but the author is trying to show that God all the way over in Persia is still in control and still moving, even though he's never mentioned in the story. So no mention of God, no miracles. He doesn't intervene at any time that we can see where it says, and God did this or God did that. There's really no prayers offered to God in this story from Esther or Mordecai. It says they fasted, but it doesn't say they prayed. And they never mention his name. So it's an interesting book. They don't even keep the dietary laws. You're going to see a, a contrast between Esther living in Persia and Daniel, who is living in Babylon, and how they handled living in a foreign land under foreign rule. And it's not the same. So Esther's not an icon of virtue. There's also no prohibition in this story against marrying non-Jews because you're going to see very early on Esther, a Jew, marries the king of Persia and doesn't seem to gripe about it, doesn't seem to complain about it. She just marries him. So it's an interesting book and an interesting contrast about the people of God. So you have a secular setting, Persia. It's not a Christian world. It's a secular world. You have secularized Jews. I, my contention is Mordecai and Esther have both become secularized. They've become used to Persia and just kind of gotten comfortable. But you also have a sovereign God. And see, what's exciting to me about that scenario is you, th you look at this world, you look at this society, and you think about all that's going on in our world, all the political mess that's been going on the last year, and all the fear and all the anger and all the stuff that's just flying around us. We live in a secular setting. Many Christians have become secularized and too much like the world. And yet, what's the thing that should bring us comfort? We have a sovereign God. And here's the neat thing, is that in spite of me and in spite of you, he's still in control. And he's going to pull off a miracle. Not because of me, not because of you, but because of him, because of his name, because of his honor, because of his own glory. So the story takes place in Susa, which is the capital, the citadel of Persia. This is where it is on a map. So you get an idea of where we're looking at. And it was an incredible place. Um, beautiful city, large city, populous city. And Brian Gregory says this, Esther, perhaps more than any other Old Testament book, shows us that God must be trusted even when he cannot be seen. You know what the biggest problem you and I have when it comes to faith is that. Trusting God when he can't be seen. When things are going great in your life, when you have money in the bank and you, uh, you, your relationship with your wife is going great and she thinks you're wonderful and your kids are obedient and everything's great, you trust God. But when he can't be seen, that's when it gets dicey, right? But he says, we must learn to live by faith and not by sight. That's really one of the underlying stories and lessons of the book of Esther is learning to live by faith and not by sight. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read Esther chapter one. Yes, it's a fairly long chapter, but this is the word of God. And I want to hear what the word of God has to say. So 
we're going to read Esther chapter 1. So you've got, you've got it in your notebooks there if you want to read from the translation I'm using. Let's see what's happening here. Now, in the day, days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. Now, here's one of the things I want to recommend that you do as we're reading through this. In your notebook where I've given you the scriptures, I want you to circle every time you see his name. Every time you see king, every time you see anything to do with royalty, power, position, just circle it. You'll be amazed how many times you're circling something. Ahasuerus and anything having to do with his throne, his royalty. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the, and the splendors and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people, President Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry and uh, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. In other words... I'm not going to tell you how much to drink, and I'm not going to tell you when to stop. That sounds like some of the frat parties you went to. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, keep in mind, guys, this is 187 days of nonstop drinking. Merry with wine. Give me a break. He's lucky to be able to walk. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bitha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abiktha, Zethar, and Zarkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with a royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Mumakan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom." According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti, he asks, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mumakan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. 
If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her a royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mumakan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Somebody this morning said, this is like a soap opera. And it really is. But this is a real story. This is, this is not a fable. It's not a myth. It's a real story about real people. But it's really a story about God. But here's the question. Where is God? He's not mentioned here. He, he's not brought into the storyline. And we have no clue, at least at this point in time, what's he doing? But here's what I can tell you, having read through this multiple times and studied through it and blogged through it, is that God is behind the scenes doing things that we don't yet see. And that's the way we need to view life. See, it says, now in the days of Ahasuerus, it says, the Ahasuerus who reigned in the third year of his reign, he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness. This whole chapter is about who? It's just at face value. It's really about King Ahasuerus, right? Multiple times it mentions his name. It mentions that he's king. It mentions that he's powerful. It mentions that he's rich. He puts on a feast for 180 days. That's six months of partying and drinking and pomp and pride and arrogance. He's showing off his wealth and power to all of his officials. And then after 180 days, he throws a seven-day party for all the people in Susa, the common people, just so they can see how rich he really is. This is a guy who is powerful and he's arrogant. It's all about an earthly king. This guy had it all, the riches, the wealth, sovereignty, power. This guy, Mumikin, I don't know who he is, but he fears him. He, he, you, you're going to see all throughout this story how the officials suck up to the king because they fear the king because the king has power. The king can reward them or he can destroy them. This guy is a sovereign like no other sovereign. He is powerful. He's superior. He has power, position, and possessions. Chapter 1 sets up the whole story by setting up this king, this earthly king that's like no other king on earth. And he's a guy who you can tell is used to getting his own way. He sends for his queen. She refuses. He gets mad. He goes, what do I do? And they say, we'll get rid of her. Okay. He, he's just used to doing whatever he wants to do. He's powerful. Unlimited wealth and unequaled influence over and over again, all throughout chapter one. So it's a, it's a setup. It's showing us the power of this man and the influence that he has. Here's what I wrote in the, in the blog, and it's in your notes if you want to read it later. While King Ahasuerus is busy displaying his power and flaunting his vast wealth, God is busy setting the stage for a divine display of his own power. He doesn't have to have his name mentioned or his presence felt. 
Men can assume his absence or try to negate his existence, but God is always there. He may go unrecognized and unseen, but he is never non-existent. See, chapter one, God's not mentioned. Chapter one, Ahasuerus is over and over and over again. And you could read chapter one and go, man, this guy's got it made. And when we get into chapter two next week, you're going to think he really had it made because he's going he's to come up with this idea. It actually is counselors come up with this idea to search throughout the land and bring all the most beautiful women of the land into his palace to choose his next queen. Man, how cool would that be? And not only does he get to choose his queen, we'll find out, he gets to keep them all. The losers don't go home, they stay in his harem. Man, it's a win-win for this guy. He gets to choose the most beautiful woman in all the kingdom, and then he gets to keep all the rest as just kind of secondary prizes. This guy is powerful. This guy is influential. But it's setting up a showdown between an earthly king and God Almighty, between Ahasuerus and another guy that's going to show up later on in the story, Haman, and God. See, we look around us in this world and we think, well, God's not in control. God doesn't know what he's doing. Um, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? God is in control. And the author of this book wants you to understand God is in control. All the way over in Persia, God is in control. And he's going to do something great in the midst of all of this. And it's a story that's all throughout the Bible, right? You have the story of God versus Pharaoh. And how Pharaoh was powerful and God conquered Pharaoh. You have God versus the prophets of Baal and how he conquered the prophets of Baal through the prophet. You have God versus Nebuchadnezzar. You remember how Nebuchadnezzar got so prideful and arrogant and then God said, you know what? You're going to end up losing your mind and living out in the field like a beast. And he did. See, it's always been about Man versus God. The power of man versus the power of God. The sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of man. And this book is going to tell you and I that God is sovereign over all. Ultimately, you see God versus Pilate and Herod. See, those two men played a major role in the crucifixion of the Son of God. But guess what? They were pawns in the hand of God to accomplish his divine will for the people of earth. See, God's in control. And ultimately, you're going to see the Antichrist in the end times and the beast up against God. Who wins that battle? God. If you've read the rest of the book or seen the movie, God wins. God is sovereign. God rules. And we got to continually tell ourselves that. And what I love about the book of Esther is it's a book where I never get to see his name I never get to see, and God showed up, and God said this, and God did that. It's just that as you read it, you, you just, after a while, you start saying, oh, I know what's going to happen here. God's going to show up. That's God. That's not a coincidence. And see, what I want is for you and I to learn to see that in life. So when something happens in your life, you don't go, oh, my gosh, what's going on? You almost get excited and go, I wonder what God's doing. I don't get it. I don't even like it, but God's up to something. Why? Because God's always up to something. And that's what we're going to learn as we go through the story.
I love Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? There is nobody on earth. There's no sovereign. There's no king. There's no president. There's no dictator. There is no one on earth who can stop the hand of God, not even Satan himself. God is sovereign. God is in control. Proverbs 21, 30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. This guy had counselors coming out his ears with names we can't even pronounce, and they were no match for the counsel and the wisdom of God. And guys, when we start to panic and we start to lose faith and we start to wonder where our God is, the problem does not lie with God, it lies with us and our ability to see God in the midst of the circumstances of life. God was in control. And I love the story of Daniel, and we're going to bounce around into Daniel off, off and on throughout the series. Listen to what it says. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him, God. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? But let's be honest. How many times have you said that last line to God? What do you mean by doing this? What do, what do you think you're doing? Who do you think you are? Well, I don't deserve this. This is bad timing. You know, when, when my back went out on Sunday, working in the yard, first thing went in my mind, I don't need this right now. I don't need it this week, starting men's ministry back up, and I'm going to have to stand up and teach in the morning and in the evening. I don't need a bad back. You know what? God knows what he's doing. And I don't know what it is. I don't know why, but God knows what he's doing. And I can trust him. And I have no right to shake my fist in his face and go, hey, this is really bad timing. You have no idea what you're doing. So here's a, here's a quick outline of chapter one. You got an extravagant party, an arrogant king, a non-compliant queen, and an irreversible edict. That's pretty much the summary of this chapter. Party, king, disobedient queen, and an edict. And you're going to see the edicts are kind of common in this book. This king liked edicts. And so you have the end of chapter 1. Verse 19 says, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. This was a common thing. It was, if a law was written by one of the kings, it could not be reversed. It could not be canceled. It could not be recanted. It was set and sealed in stone. And that's important for us to understand as we go into this. And this idea of pleasing the king is all throughout the story. Everybody was out to please the king. Why? Because he's king and he's powerful and he had a temper. And you're going to see that sometimes that temper not only got queens fired, it got people killed. But it's all about pleasing Ahasuerus. That theme will be ongoing. His pleasure and his favor seems to be critical in the book. But for us, for Esther, for Mordecai, as Jews, as followers of God, it should have been the pleasure and favor of God. What does God want? What is God doing? What would please him? This guy's wills, will and wishes were crucial to everybody around him. And yet, Esther and Mordecai were going to learn that, you know, I'm more concerned about what, what's God going to do? What's God's will? What's he accomplishing? What does he want to do in my life and in your life? There's somebody else at work in the story. 
And here's the, here's the one phrase that I think we could put all throughout the story. If I could rewrite the book of Esther, I would add this line in over and over again. It just so happened. Because that's really kind of, as you read the story, you're going to have these little kind of moments where you go, man, that's interesting. It just, just so happened. What a coincidence. What fate. It just so happened the king decided to throw a six-month-long party. We don't know why he threw the party, but he just decides to throw a party in a six-month one. It just so happened he came up with the idea to show off the queen. Probably not a really bright idea. Why, why was he wanting to show off the queen? Because he was prideful and arrogant and she was beautiful. And he wanted to, she was just a fixture. Hey, you've seen my palace. You've seen my gold couches. You've seen all my fine display of wealth. Okay, take, take a look at this. Here's my wife. And she's like, no, you're not going to parade me around like a piece of property. And it got her into trouble. It just so happened she wasn't in the mood. She refused. Just so happened he lost his temper and his sanity. And he decides, okay, I'm going to deal with her. It just so happens the solution ended up being an irreversible edict. Now keep in mind, we haven't read the rest of the story, but this is a setup. It just so happened it all ended up pleasing the king. So all of these things are happening. It just so happened. This chain of events in chapter one are setting up something to come. Now, because we've only read chapter one, maybe you've gone ahead and read Esther, but if let's say you've just read chapter one like we just did, this is all you know. And it's kind of like life, right? There's only certain things you know about life. You know today, and you really don't have much clue what tomorrow holds. And what Esther is going to teach us is that there is someone who does know what tomorrow holds, and that's God Almighty. And he knows what chapter 2 is going to say and what chapter 3 is going to say all the way up through the end of the book. Because God's in control. God has a will. God has a plan. I love this from Daniel. Praise the name of the God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. That is the God of Daniel. That's our God. That's also the God of Esther and Mordecai, even though he's not mentioned in the book. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's the one who put Ahasuerus on the throne. He's the one that's going to put Haman into power. All of these things are happening by the will of God. Luke 1, verse 49 through 52. The mighty one is holy. He has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. This is our God. This is the story that we're going to see in the book of Esther. But see, I don't want this to just end with the book of Esther. I want this to be the story of your life. I want this to be the story of my life, that his mighty arm has done tremendous things, that he is at work, that he has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. You will go through difficulty in life. You will have trouble. You will have trials, tribulations. It's been promised to us. It's part of the process of living out life in this world. But we have a God who's in control, and he knows what he's doing. Whether you see it or not, and whether you like it or not, he knows what he's doing. So here's your table discussion questions. I want you to discuss this quote. 
It's a pretty uh, uncomfortable quote. It says, many Christians end up being more or less functional deists, believing that God exists and is up there, but going about the normal matters of daily life as if he were not really involved much at all. I would say they're much more like functional atheists. Because saying that God is up there, but he's not involved, he might as well not be anywhere. He might as well not exist. I want you to just discuss that at your table. Maybe somebody will be honest to admit that sometimes you feel that way. Second one, in what ways have you struggled personally and spiritually with God's seeming absence in your life? This is where you're going to have to get honest and open and say, you know what? There have been times where I feel like he's non-existent and it really made me angry. And then finally, what could... What could be a Christ-like response to those moments when God seems distant or as if he has disappeared? How should you respond to that? What would be a Christ-like response? As usual, guys, if you get stuck on one question, that's fine with me. If you never get to any of these questions and you come up with your own, that's fine with me as long as it's not about politics or sports. And I want you to try to end with prayer before you walk out of this building today, that God would bring you back and that you would grow as a process of this study. Father, I pray for these guys. I pray that you would move mightily around the tables, guide the table shepherds, guide the conversation. I pray for honesty, openness, transparency, that, Father, we would admit as men that sometimes we feel like you're not there. We don't see you. We don't feel your presence. And our life ends up being like the story of Esther where you're just not around. And yet, may we understand that whether we see you or not, you're there. Whether we feel it or not, you care. And you're at work. Give us eyes to see you. And I pray this all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So you guys have fun.